Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're the generous type, you can be like Brian, Jerry, John, Garrett, Ben, Janet, and Jody, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, and stickers on our Teespring store, so go check that out. Today on the show, we have Danny Escantrella, a marine biology PhD candidate at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. Danny has worked on many amazing marine research projects in the U.S., Ecuador, and Belize, and she spent two years in the Philippines working as a Peace Corps Coastal Resource Management Volunteer. Now she's studying coralivores in Hawaii. Welcome to the podcast, Danny. Hi, thank you for having me. So what originally sparked your interest in marine science? So that I have kind of like I feel like it's like a typical marine biologist answer. I have always just been obsessed with the ocean. Uh, I grew up, I'm from Venezuela originally. So my parents and I, we grew and siblings, we grew up going to the beach all the time, like probably once a month. And when we lived in Venezuela, it was kind of far away, like maybe a couple hours. So we didn't get to go as much as I would have liked. But every time I went, I was just always so excited. I was always very curious about what was underwater. Um, and then we moved to the United States. And when we we moved to Florida, we were half an hour away from the beach. So way closer. We were able to go basically like every week if we wanted to. Um, and I remember when I was young, I would grab like the little bits of sargassum floating on the surface and shake them out because I was so curious about the animals. So it's just been kind of one of those things that has always interested me. I've grown up since I was probably eight saying I wanted to be a marine biologist. And at first people thought that meant I wanted to be a dolphin trainer, which no shade to that profession, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. I just always wanted to study like what was underwater. And I think as I also grew older, I realized all the threats that, you know, our ecosystems face. So it became more about not only studying what was underwater, but also figuring out ways that we can better protect it and conserve those ecosystems. I guess this is probably my reason, too, is just I like the beach a lot (laughs) growing up. So, yeah, I feel like that's one way to get there. (laughs) Yeah. And I also I guess I, I forgot to mention, too, I got scuba certified when I was really young, when I was 13. And that was also like such an amazing experience. I saw it. This was in Turks and Caicos in a family vacation. And I saw my first sharks, my first stingrays, and I was just instantly hooked. And I feel like that was like the final push, even though I was so young, just the final push to be like, this is what you want to do kind of the rest of your life. And I still feel that way. I still love doing this. Awesome. So you did your undergraduate degree at the University of Miami. Can you talk about different projects that you worked on during your time there? Yeah, so the main thing I worked on, um, I was in the shark uh, research and conservation lab for four years. And that was a really cool experience that really introduced me to the shark world, um, which is something I hope to get back into one day. I was a, an intern and a field and a trip leader during a lot of the trips. And based, I was mostly involved with field work at the time um, because I was just kind of getting started out in science. Uh, so we'd go out on these cool, like, day-long trips with citizen scientists or other students. 
and we'd cut sharks and we'd take all sorts of things, samples like fin clips, blood samples, uh, muscle samples. We'd take a bunch of measurements and we'd use those, for example, to tell how stressed sharks, how stressed out sharks were, what they were eating. Um, and then I did a senior thesis project looking at their morphology. So like their body dimensions and kind of, which is kind of like a proxy for health and seeing if there were, if sharks were healthier kind of near urban areas versus more remote areas, like down in the Keys. And then besides the shark research lab, I also got to study abroad in the Galapagos, which was an awesome experience. And I didn't really do research projects there, but I learned a lot about you know, the the ecosystems there, a lot of ecological concepts. And then I did little, you know, class projects uh, looking at like the birds, um, some of the reptiles and their ecology. So that was a really cool and unique experience to go to like where Charles Darwin went. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. So the next question I have is kind of just, you know, to talk a little bit more about the projects that you were working on in Ecuador and Belize. I didn't really work on too many projects in Ecuador because that was when I studied abroad in the Galapagos. So that was mostly just kind of learning and studying, you know, like the ecosystems there and some of the ecological concepts, conservation. Um, I got to live with a host family, which was kind of cool. And that also introduced me to the social aspect kind of of science. Uh, my host dad at the time used to be a or he used to be a shark fisherman before I live with them. And it was really interesting to get his opinion and like his perspective about, you know, what what are the consequences of fishing bans, especially when you live in such a remote area and there's limited jobs and resources. So that that was a even though it was in a project, that was a, a really interesting experience because it made me realize that uh, for conservation to work, you need to have a lot of input and buy in from the community, especially for the people that are going to be affected by those policies. In Belize, I worked as a field scientist for an NGO called Blue Ventures. And a lot of my work there was mostly uh, kind of habitat monitoring. So it was one of those programs where we uh, took on kind of eco-volunteers and we would train them to do things like species identification um, and how to do a bunch of different sorts of habitat assessments. So we did things like coral the seas uh, surveys, coral uh, fish surveys. We even did bird surveys, which I never thought I'd be doing bird surveys, uh, manatees, so all, all these things. Um, and that uh, this was all done within a marine protected area that was probably about a two hour boat ride from the closest town. Uh, so we'd live out there for, for a few weeks at a time. And all these surveys at the end of the year, we'd kind of compile all the information and come out with a report to try to see kind of how the resources were doing within the marine protected area. I also worked a lot with lionfish, which is one of the invasive species, a really invasive species, not just in Belize, throughout the Caribbean and the Atlantic. Um, so we would go out and col uh, catch them or cold them in the marine protected area, which is really good because there's no fishing obviously allowed in marine protected areas. So we were one of the only people that were allowed to catch them. Uh, and we would look at their stomach content. So we would find everything from big rats to like little crabs and stuff like that. They really eat everything. And one other cool project with the lionfish is the, the women in our community were using, besides developing a fisheries for lionfish, 
the women in our community were using the fins of the lionfish to make jewelry, which was kind of cool. So trying to use every part of the animal. Um, I wasn't like, I didn't start there or anything. It was just something kind of I helped with here and there. But it was really cool because it was promoting like the fishery of this really invasive species and trying to use every part of the animal. Very cool. I've done some lionfish fishing before, but I didn't know that you could make jewelry out of their fins. That's really awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. They made like, you know, earrings and rings, every, I think every type of jewelry. Uh, but yeah, catching lionfish is honestly really fun. I'm not a big spear fisher woman, I guess, or anything, but lionfish is one of those easy fish to catch. So if you really want to like try it out, that's that's where you should start because they just stand still. They they don't move anywhere. Yeah, they don't move at all. I remember <laughs> I was I was out one time and we had found three of them like closer together under a ledge. And we went down and got one and then brought it to the boat, got the other one, brought it to the boat. Like they were not at all phased. It was honestly yeah, like they're, crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, they're wild. I did a, a we did a lionfish derby in southern Belize in one of the marine protected areas. And our team, we're all like scientists and not really, you know, fishers or anything. So we got maybe like 80 in a day, which is still, you know, that's a lot of fish. But some of the other teams that were ex- experienced fishermen uh, we're catching like 700 in one day, which was wild. Like, I don't even understand how you catch so many fish in one day. Yeah, that's crazy. But awesome for them. That's probably like a ton of food. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's we so convenient. All those, so. Yeah, it's so convenient that they're like also good to eat, even though they are invasive. Like, it's a good food source. Yeah, I don't even like seafood, but they make really good lionfish tacos, which is, you know, like, like, yeah, I don't like seafood, but I, I like eating lionfish for some reason. I agree. I feel like it's the mental thing. Like, I'm I'm not a big seafood person, but I'm like, this was invasive, so <laughs> I can eat it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, I think, how I feel, too. So how did you go from doing these kinds of projects to then working with the Peace Corps in the Philippines? So after undergrad, it's funny, I always knew I wanted to be a marine biologist, but I don't think I realized there's so many different types of jobs you can have as a marine biologist. I knew eventually I'd want to go to grad school, but I, I didn't have like much direction about like what I would want to research in grad school. And I didn't feel like I was kind of mentally prepared for grad school anyways. So I just took on a bunch of different jobs. I figured I was young too, and I could like do these kind of you know, low paying jobs. I'd heard of Peace Corps before through like friends and stuff. And it just seemed like a really good opportunity to uh, work with communities. So the Peace Corps was more community work than like actual science work. And I wanted to get more experience with that. So Peace Corps just kind of seemed like the perfect opportunity to combine kind of my passion for conservation, but also get more experience uh, working with like fishermen and coastal communities that depend on the ocean so heavily for their resources. What was the what was the work like there? Like, what was kind of your day to day? So the first three months we did training. So we Philippi- Philippines was a completely new place for me. I'd never even been to Asia. So it was a lot of, you know, learning about the culture, uh, trying to learn the language. I had t- Tagalog is a language that doesn't have as many resources to learn as like Spanish or English. So it was kind of a little bit of a challenge. Um, so, the yeah, the first three months were like culture, learning about the Philippines, learning about like what were kind of the not the problems, but kind of their 
ocean resource issues, I guess you could say. Um, after that, those three months, we I moved in with like a permanent host site and I lived with a host family for two years. Um, the first couple months, we're just trying to get the community, trying to understand like what were their needs? What did they want me to do? Because I didn't want to come in and be like, I'm going to do this even if you don't need it. Um, so the day-to-day was really different, uh, but I like to describe my Peace Corps experience as kind of like my two big projects that I'm really proud of. Um, we did a uh, training for teachers on environmental education. Uh, so when I came up with this project, I wanted them to have some sort of long- longevity after I left. So we did a training for teachers to teach them about the different environmental topics in their town. Um, so like about coral reefs and mangroves and seagrasses. And because I wasn't great with the language and I also was not an expert with my specific community, um, we had the university come in and actually give those lectures because it. I just think it, the information comes better from someone that's from there. Um, and then after that project, I followed up with a bunch of different schools. I helped them do like talks for their students. A lot of students even started their own projects like uh, recycling stations. They did tree plantings. And that was that was so cool to see. Um, and then we did a participatory coastal resource assessment. Uh, basically, you do habitat assessments, fisher folk interviews and focus group discussions with people from all the coastal communities. But again, because I wanted this to be something that like could be done after I was gone instead of me just going and doing it. We got uh, community leaders and fisher folk from all the coastal communities to come to a training first so they could learn how to do all those assessments. And then we actually implemented it on all the communities. And um, after we gathered all that data from the three different types of surveys, I wrote a profile that kind of outlined what were some of the issues with our coastal resource, the coastal resources in the community. And I um, presented that those findings to the community leaders and the local government unit. So honestly, the day-to-day was always really different depending on which project I was working. Um, there's also like the work life, the work culture over there is a little bit different. I like that more people like if there's like, uh, a fiesta or a party they'll go during the work day and just like celebrate with their people so one day I could be out in a community do- doing video with a bunch of Filipinos or another day I could actually be doing like an assessment in the water so it really varied on the day but it was always exciting because you never really knew what was going to happen when you went into the office <laughs> that sounds super fun <laughs> no I'm like maybe I should do it <laughs> Yeah, it was a great time. I mean, I I also love the Filipino culture and people. They're all super nice. And even though I didn't know the language super well, because after I learned Tagalog during training, my community spoke a different dialect, which had even less resources. Uh, But you always found a way to communicate and like people were super nice. So if you didn't know where you were going, for example, like they just walk you there rather than try to explain where it was. So it was just kind of like a very friendly I don't know. People are just very friendly and very kind. So I'll kind of get into what you're studying for your PhD. So the first question I'll ask about that is what are coralivores? So, yeah, coralivores, I didn't even know that much about them, actually, before I started my PhD. But they're just animals that eat coral. Um, It's interesting because 
you, you know, corals are animals, but a lot of people think they're like plants or rocks because they're just these like hard structures that sit on the bottom. But there are and but they are animals and there are other animals that eat coral um, and coralivores. Uh, they uh, come. They're pretty diverse. They can be either fishes, worms, sea stars, crabs or snails. And they all consume coral in different ways. So they have the potential to affect corals in different ways when they do consume them. Um so, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting when you start getting into the details of it. What are some of the methods you use to study corallivory? <laughs> That's a word. <laughs> Don't worry. I had a hard time learning to pronounce it at the beginning, too. Uh, so I, I work on a few different projects, and they all have required different methods. Um, so one of the corallivores I study is the Christian sea star. Uh, they're this this like kind of fat sea star, they look like a like a cushion, which is why they get their name. Um, when they consume coral, they they basically climb onto a colony and they expel their stomach from their body and they'll secrete digestive enzymes to absorb the polyps and then they'll like suck their stomach back into their body. But basically with the cushion sea star, I'm trying to determine what species of coral they prefer to eat and kind of general feeding ecology and how they're distributed around the island and what drives their distribution. So for those feeding, uh, for the feeding ecology aspect, one of the methods I use, I deployed these like PVC cages of a reef on, on Oahu. And I basically would just, I would leave them without for food for a week. And then I'd uh, offer them two species of coral, leave them for another week and see what they ate. I use like uh, programmable cameras just to try to figure out like when they were feeding, if they ate two species, I'd want to know the order. So I, I would use these little cameras that took pictures every certain amount of time. And then for their distribution and like what drives their distribution, I did surveys all around Oahu. Um, and all of this is with scuba diving. Uh, so I would take these, uh, they're called diver purport propulsion vehicles or scooters and I would do roving surveys at each reef so I'd I'd rove around for like 30 minutes um, towing a GPS so I could keep track of how long my searches were and I'd basically just look for cushion stars and every time I found one I'd write like spe specific information on them um, and then I did things like transects to try to figure out what coral species were there to see if for example prey was uh, driving their distribution and then the last project I'm doing which is a, a really new method. Uh, I'm working with NOAA. Uh, they do a lot of work with structure from motion, which are the, the, the new kind of like 3D models of the reef. Um, they've been using that a lot for monitoring, like things like um, coral cover, uh, the seas biodiversity. So we're basically trying to figure out if we can use those models to quantify coral livery. Uh, so for that, I counted, I, it seems like it's like, pretty simple methods. I basically went in the water and I would count number of bite marks within a quadrant or a one by one meter area. And then I'd take pictures to create those models. And then I'd count the number of bite marks in the same area in those models. So that one's kind of cool because it's kind of, it's developing a methodology um, that hopefully can be used by managers to uh, uh, track and monitor, monitor coral livery. Awesome. So since this is the fisheries podcast, I'm wondering if we can now kind of get into how this ties into fisheries management. Yeah, so coral reef fisheries are actually really important for a lot of coastal communities, especially when you go to really remote areas like 
Um, I was just on a research cruise recently and we we passed by at Kiribati, which is a small island nation in the middle of the Pacific. And so communities like these that are so remote, they really rely on coral reefs and the fish in those coral reefs for their food and protein, et cetera. So they're really important fisheries. Um, but unfortunately, uh, a lot of them are overexploited. So in a, in a study a few years ago, they found like a, a little over half of uh, coral reef fisheries in island countries are overexploited. So in, when it comes to, to coral reef fisheries, obviously things like fishing regulations, uh, so things like catch limits, size restrictions, closed and open seasons, all those things are super important for managing fisheries. But lately, a lot of managers have started to employ <clears throat> an ecosystem-based fisheries management approach, which not only takes into consideration the actual fish you're trying to manage, but also where it lives, what other organisms inter it interacts with. So that's kind of where coral reefs and coral reef health come in. Coral reefs are super, super important ecosystem engineers. They create a lot of habitat for species, and a lot of them have really complex uh, morphologies like branches or really intricate reef matrices where fish and other like invertebrates can hide. So they're really important just in that sense of creating a home almost and creating food for uh, fish and other uh, organisms that are important to fisheries. But like we probably all know, coral reefs world worldwide are in decline from a lot of different stressors. There's local stressors like agricultural runoff, fisheries, you know, physical damage from anchors and storms. And then at the global level, we have things like ocean warming, which causes bleaching, um, which is when the little algae that live in their polyps uh, get expelled from the coral and then coral don't have any food. And then acidification where basically corals can't create skeleton. And these all these threats kind of work together and exacerbate each other. So as coral reef health declines, we're losing a lot of the structural complexity that is on coral reefs. And a lot of those corals are actually being replaced by algae. Tying that back into fisheries, when you lose this structural com complexity, you have less refuge for coral reef animals. And so you have reductions in food availability, both for the actual animals that live on the reef. So for example, coralivores, they don't have coral to eat. But then also you think about things like uh, big tuna, for example, that might come into a reef to eat. It also creates less food for humans because if the fish we're catching don't have food or a space to live or they're getting eaten by predators, that means we're going to have um, less fish to eat. So in short, coral reefs are important for fisheries because they provide such an important space for these fish that we catch to live and to reproduce and all these important like life history uh, functions. So it's, it's important when we manage fisheries to not only think about the species that we're managing, but, you know, where are the fish going to reproduce? Where are they going to eat? Where are they going to find shelter? And again, that's where coral reefs come in. And that's why it's important to keep reefs healthy. And where my research come in, comes in, I study, like I said, coralivores, which coralivores are a natural part of the system. Like some level of predation is always important for um, ecosystems. So, for example, coralivores can be really important because they can for, uh, eat faster growing species of coral, which opens up space for other slower grow, growing coral species. But they can also be pretty detrimental to reefs, especially when they're unchecked, like when they exp experience big population outbreaks. So a really kind of keystone example of that is the crown of thorns sea star. They're this pretty big sea star. They have a bunch of spikes. 
Um, and they experienced pretty big outbreaks in, in some of the Pacific reefs. One of the biggest examples is on the Great Barrier Reef. And they've been the leading, one of the biggest causes of coral mortality actually on the Great Barrier Reef after bleaching events. So essentially the coral livery is one of the, it's a local threat that we can manage, make sure that it doesn't, we can make sure that coral livery doesn't go unchecked and doesn't lead to these mass mortality events of corals. So where my research comes in is just trying to find, uh, figure out, for example, are cushion sea stars, which is the specific coral where I study, are they increasing in abundance around around the island and are they something that we should keep an eye on um this uh structure from motion tool i talked about earlier is helpful because it helps us manage coral livery and determine whether it may be increasing or decreasing at certain sites it, and all it's just one of those local stressors that we can keep an eye on and while it's not as detrimental to reefs as things like you know climate change or acidification. There's been studies that show that managing local stressors can buy reefs time until these bigger global issues are resolved. So I'm kind of just like a little bit piece in the puzzle that's trying to like help reefs hold on until we hopefully stabilize uh, greenhouse gas emissions. The other cool thing about, or not cool thing, but I, t I just talked about how coralivores can affect fisheries, but fisheries can also affect coralivores. So when we remove fish that eat invertebrates, for example, that can cause a coralivore outbreak. So uh, there's been examples where things like Drapella snails, which are a type of coralivorous uh, species, the crown of thorns, and even sea urchins, which aren't coral coralivorous, but they are invertebrates, um, they tend to be found in greater densities and heavily reefed heavily fished reefs compared to areas like MPAs where there's no fishing. And that's because these invertebrate uh, invertebrate eating fish get removed. And then that causes kind of these population outbreaks of um, invertebrates, which in the case of coralivores can be pretty bad for reefs. So it's kind of a big feedback loop. Like it all feeds back into each other. You talked a couple times about a monitoring system uh, with NOAA. Mm -hmm. You were actually involved in developing that, right? Yeah, I yeah, I developed the whole method. I don't know. The PhD process has been a little hard because it I don't know, figuring out ways to study things can be challenging sometimes. When I was developing the method, the first thing I did was first of all try to figure out what type of coral predators there are. So I, I mentioned earlier on that um coralivores feed in different ways. Some of them only eat the mucus that the coral secretes. Some of them eat just the tissue and some of them eat the skeleton and the coral. So I had to figure out a way to actually, like how do I wanna go about counting coral bite marks? Like if you have a sea star, they're eating a whole swath of coral, whereas you have something like a file fish or a puffer fish, they'll take individual chunks. So the first step was just figuring out what was there. Um, this was involved me just like doing observations underwater, I emailed listers asking people for pictures of coral livery in Hawaii. So I first developed kind of these categories. And then I tried a couple different types of survey techniques underwater. Because when you do research with scuba underwater, you have a lot of time limitations. Like you might run out of air. You also can't stay deep long. So I was trying to figure out a method that I could do in both deep and shallow sites without going over those time limits. So I tried a couple different methods. All of it was with transects and quadrats. So laying out a measuring tape and like the PVC squares. 
So that that was kind of just trying to figure out like how much of an area do I want to count? Do I want to try to figure out where each individual bite mark is and catalog that? Do I just want to count them? Uh, so I went through a couple iterations of the method until I figured out what was kind of doable and achievable and what I could also do. Like when I was annotating models, I wanted to make sure I could do the same thing that I did on the water as I did on land on the computer. So that was another aspect that I had to consider when I was developing that methodology. Yeah, when I saw that on your website, I was like, wow, how'd you do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that was that was actually easier than figuring out how to keep cushion stars in cages. So I consider myself lucky that that, <laughs> that, that one seemed a little bit more straightforward, that trying to keep cushion stars in cages proved to be a little bit more difficult than I thought it would be. So interesting. How do you keep cushion stars in cages? So I tried that one. I tried, I think, maybe six different methods. So I, I first bought these like, you know, the a lot of this involves me going to the hardware store like Lowe's or Home Depot and just being like, what could I use underwater? Um, so I tried a few different of those um, like guarding fencing, like the little fences. Uh, but those were just like bad. They They would crawl out right away. They didn't work, which is funny because they're like really lumpy. You wouldn't expect them to be able to do that. And then I tried a couple different cages with PVC, trying different mesh sizes. And even when the mesh sizes were like an inch, they were still getting out somehow. It's honestly quite impressive. And at the end, I, I, or maybe more than an inch, but at the end, I landed on a PVC cage with like one inch mesh. And then my one of my lab mates had a great idea to like close the tops of the cages with shower curtain rings. Um, that way we could easily open and close them. So that's also, that's something I love about this field is like, how can I study this? Like, what can I use? Because, you know, they don't just sell sea star cages, you know, anywhere. So you have to like figure out how you're going to get things done. And I honestly really like that part of this, this career. Yeah, I feel like when people think of a scientist, they think we're all using like the most crazy high tech newest equipment when really we're just building stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I've built so many random things because it didn't exist and I needed it. I know. I went, when I when I was buying the PVC pipe, I'd have to have them cut it. And they'd be like, what are you using this for? I'm like, I don't know. This is going to be weird, but for caging sea stars, actually. You know, like, just the weirdest things. That's hilarious. I wouldn't even think that would be one of the harder things. Like, just keeping them in their cages. <laughs> I love that. So do you have any preliminary results of your research that you want to share? Yeah, sure. So my first, I've already analyzed my first two chapters and written drafts of them. Um, for the feeding preference study, uh, we found uh, that cushion stars like to eat postulopera, which is uh, the common name's cauliflower coral. Um, I mean, we've, we know this from previous studies, and that's kind of important because that cauliflower coral is one of the only branching coral species in Hawaii, which means that it's really important for habitat for fish and invertebrates and other species. Um, but also because cauliflower coral is one of the first to bleach during um, a bleaching event. So they are facing these threats from not just bleaching, but also predation. Um, and we know that from some preliminary surveys I did, that cushion stars may also be increasing in abundance at some sites. So it's kind of something to look out for and potentially could help uh, guide some restoration efforts. Like, you know, maybe we need more 
uh, restoration for the specific coral species. Maybe we need to do caging structures around them when we first outplant them because uh, outplanted corals are actually really susceptible within the first week or two to coral livery. Um, but then besides that, which is something that we kind of knew already, I tested a bunch of other species that hadn't been tested before. Um, so we came up with a hierarchy of prey choice. And this is also good for management because in the case that, for example, Opera became completely depleted, we'd know what other species of coral they would eat after um, that that initial species that they prefer the most. Um, and then for my, the other, the other study, the one with the structure for motion, uh, we, like I said, we compared the methods in water methods and the, the structure for motion methods. We found actually that the counts of coral livery or like the density was higher through the annotation process. Um, it's likely that the real answer or like the real estimate lies somewhere between those two methods. Um, one of the things we looked at in terms of like where where do the methods differ the most was, uh, for example, depth. So we found that the differences between the methods were higher at sites where that were deeper. And usually the counts were higher in the SFM method than the in-water method. And we think that's because when we're underwater doing these surveys at deep sites, we're usually more rushed. So we don't have time to look under like all the nooks and crannies and count every single bite mark. Sometimes we even, if it's like a like a hundred bites, we might have to estimate rather than counting each individual one. Whereas when we're on the computer, we can sit there and just look through endless pictures and count all the pick all the bite marks. This is an example. One of one of the surveys I did took like maybe 40 or 50 minutes underwater plus gathering images. Um, and that was a deeper site around 60 feet. But then I spent 50 hours annotating the model. So it gives you a lot more time to actually look through all those pictures. And the other factor that also influenced those between method difference was hard coral cover. So again, in areas with a lot of hard coral, we found bigger differences and usually SFM had higher counts. And that's kind of similar reasoning. When you have an area with a lot of coral, it's going to take you longer to look at every single colony and count bite marks. And if you're limited by air or by time underwater, you're going to be a little bit more rushed. Whereas on the computer, you have a little bit more time and like you're not you're not pressed for time or anything. So you can take your time counting bite marks. Um, the cool thing is that even though the methods did differ, you could like the like the ranking of sites in terms of coral livery rates was the same in both methods. So sites that had a lot of coral livery during in-water surveys had the same high rates in the annotation method. And then sites with little coral livery had this like the same low coral livery in both methods. And that's good for con like management because when you're managing coral livery, you're not necessarily interested in the specific number of bite marks, but more you want to know like what sites might be experiencing more coral livery than others so you can enact management interventions. So that was cool because like, I think it could be very easily applied to uh, management. And the cool thing about this models is that they create a permanent record of the reef. So you could use them for coral livery, but then if you find a new way to use the models, like if you find new data you can extract, you can go back to the same model and extract new data. So they've served a lot of functions, even though it takes a long time to annotate, you can get a ton of data. And instead of spending, let's say, 20 hours doing a bunch of different surveys underwater, you can do it all in the computer. So you like reduce your costs, you know, of boat time and underwater time and stuff like that. Awesome. So random question about 
cushion stars. Are they, do you know if they're like used for anything? Are they harvested for any purposes that you know of? Not that I know of. Um, yeah, I don't think I, they're not, you know, sometimes in some, like some places you see people like selling little sea stars and stuff, like they collect those, but you don't see that with cushion stars because they're li- really like, you. they don't even have like distinct arms. They They look like a cushion. So they're not like, they're not really like, charismatic sea star that you think of when you see a sea star the the thing that is used commercially or like that's collected is their predator which is one of the things i'm also looking at so the triton's trumpet is this snail like big snail that eats them when they're adults Um, and they also eat the crown of thorns and those get collected um, and they're found pretty sparsely in a lot of uh, regions so that i know of that but not of the cushion star for collection or anything okay so unless you think I left anything out that you want to mention before we get into the final five, I think we'll start those if you're ready. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, perfect. So the final five is a set of five questions that we ask every guest that comes on the show. Um, we say it's the easy part of the interview, but I disagree because the first question is, what's your favorite fish? Okay, so... I, my favorite fish, and it has nothing to do with what I know about it. I actually don't know that much about it, but it's the ocean sunfish or the mola mola. I know like a few things about them. I know they're like the largest bony fish. I know they have a lot of parasites on their body, you know, like kind of like the basics. But my favorite, I just love them because I think they're really goofy looking. <laughs> and the second reason is just my favorite dive I've ever done involved seeing a mola mola and it's the only time I've ever seen one and this was while I was in the Galapagos and there was like it was a dive where there was like hammerheads and sea lions and Galapagos like all sorts of things around me and all of a sudden this like mass massive fish like a blob because they're so like they just don't look like a normal fish just like comes out of nowhere and I just swam directly to it and it was just my favorite dive ever and that's maybe why it's my favorite species it was just such a cool moment underwater Uh, I'd never seen one before and haven't seen one since. Yeah, those guys are so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've never seen one, but I would love to. Yeah, and they're so big, too. Like, I have a picture of me, like, because it swam right past me. And it's, like, I think as big as I was. It was massive. I don't know. They're just really cool. Just because they're so goofy looking, I think. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) So what's, what's your favorite memory from your career so far? That one, yeah, that one's hard. Um, <laughs> I think probably because it's my most, probably one of my more recent memorable experiences, but I recently um, went on a cruise, a NOAA cruise as part of the National Coral Reef Monitoring Program. So we started out in Hawaii. We didn't do service in Hawaii because this year, or I guess last year, they were surveying like the Pacific remote islands in American Samoa. Um, actually, no, sorry. I started in American Samoa. Uh, we did surveys around American Samoa and then we crossed all the way back to Hawaii. But on the way, we stopped at Howland and Baker, which are like two specks basically in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It was a long journey, 10 days. But the diving was just so incredible. Like the, I've not, it's just places that I don't think I'll ever get to go to again. So I felt really, really privileged and happy. And also because I'd never been on a cruise before and doing research and surveys off of of a cruise is a whole different experience. Um, And I just feel like I learned so much, you know, and 
it was all so new that it was really exciting. You know, I got to see like manta rays. I saw hammerhead, these huge dog tooth tuna. And it was just like, yeah, the most beautiful reef I've ever seen. There was one dive where I was doing fish surveys and we had a school of rainbow runner, a school of barracuda, all these baby gray reef sharks all around us. This big one kind of like passing us by and checking us out because they're kind of territorial. Um, dolphins in the background and my head was just exploding. Like I didn't know what to look at while also trying to count all these fish. And then uh, I did a second leg of the cruise where we started in Hawaii and made our way back to American Samoa. And in American Samoa, I ended up uh, seeing a butterfly fish that had only been seen in American Samoa once, like 30 years before. So I totally nerded out over that. But yeah, it was just like the combination of being surrounded by like people that were really excited to do this, being on a cruise for the first time and learning like cruise logistics, which I didn't know about. And then just seeing these reefs that I I don't think I'll ever see again. And like that not many people get to see. It just felt really like special to me. That sounds incredible. <laughs> what is your dream job or dream location? So dream location, that one's really easy because it's been my dream location since I was there, but it's also kind of unrealistic. I don't think I'd get a job there, but I would love to live and work in the Galapagos again. It's like one of the most magical places I've ever been. Um, but more like realistically, I think somewhere tropical with coral reefs, an island. I love living on islands. I don't know. I like being remote. So even, you know, if I could live in Hawaii again, I would do that. Right now I'm in Tacoma, Washington, because my husband works here. Um, so it's really cold and I do not enjoy the cold. So somewhere tropical with coral reefs, doing coral reef work. My ideal work would be doing research that informs management and then maybe eventually becoming the person that helps like write policies or come up with like the actual, you know, conservation or management decisions. Um, I'm still kind of torn about whether I want to work for like government or NGO or academia. I've had experiences in all three and they all have their pros and cons. I think I'm leaning towards just trying to do government work right after grad school, but I can see myself going back into academia because I really love research and like mentoring students. Um, but I just, I think I need a little break from it. Uh, so yeah, right now I'm, I'm, as I'm trying to wrap up my PhD, I'm mostly applying for like yeah, government jobs, which is something I've wanted to do, like since I started. So I'm happy that I'm finally at a place where I feel like I have the skills to do it. Very cool. When are you, I guess, planning to finish your PhD? Well, fingers crossed. I'm trying to set my defense for May. Um, I wouldn't officially graduate till August because I'd still have to like finish, you know, my dissertation. And I have some other things I want to do over the summer that are attached to grad school. But yeah, Hopefully defending in May. I'm trying to plan a, a, a university symposium right now and write my last chapter. So it feels a little overwhelming, but I think I can do it. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I, I had, you know, what do you want to do after you finish your PhD on here as a potential question? And then, <laughs> but I, I always am unsure whether I should ask it or not, but I'm glad that you answered it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's just, I've been applying for jobs, so it's on my mind for sure. I've been trying to think about it more. Oh, if money were not an issue, what's one project you'd love to work on? So I think the, the bigger issue, and I think, would be greenhouse gas emissions. So if we could transition to like green energy and stuff. But if I'm thinking more local and like more, I don't want to say realistic, because I'm obviously hoping that greenhouse gas emissions is something that we can realistically solve. But if I'm thinking local... 
I think water quality would be something that I would be really interested in. I think it's one of those issues that really only, I think, for the most part, just requires money. Like you, you're not going to find a lot of people that are like, I want dirty water. Most people want clean water because, you know, like the fish we eat swim through that water. We go to the beach and lakes and rivers, you know, we drink water. So I think it's one of those things that's like potentially really simple to solve. And it's also one of those that's like, get 10 for the price of one. Like if you solve water quality issues, you're actually solving, resolving a lot of problems for different species and ecosystems. Like corals are incredibly sensitive to water quality. Like they don't like murky water. They need, um, they don't like pollutants. They don't like sediments. So that would help corals. You obviously have a lot of fish that are very sensitive to, you know, uh, water, like pollutants and water quality. So I don't know. I think it's one of those that's potentially simple. I think it could have a lot of buy-in and we really just need money to like, you know, get rid of, uh, have better like water treatment plans, have less septic tanks, things like that, that cost like, you know, water to like dirty water to leak into the ocean. Yeah, definitely. Now you've got me thinking like there's also the public health aspect of clean water. A lot of these issues are like so big and also so simple. (laughs) I know. I mean, yeah, that's why I think water quality is like an easy one. Like no one wants dirty water, right? Like I don't want to go to the Mm -hmm. beach and be like, I hope I don't get like a disease today. So it's just, it seems like if we have the money, it should be somewhat simple to solve. Like you're not going to find people that are against that, but you know. Depending on where the dirtiness is coming from, maybe, but yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's also- I love it, but- (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's also like- interesting because you know i grew up in florida and not i I follow the news there a lot they're having tons of water quality issues and people go to florida to go to the beach right so if you're starting to have to close down beaches because the water is dirty that's also affecting the economy so to me it's one of those things that you can like you can solve many problems at once if you just tackle that issue awesome so i have one last question if there was one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I don't want to be doom and gloom, but basically I think we need to act fast to try to save many like of the species and ecosystems that we have on earth Um, for coral reefs specifically, which is what I know the most about. They're expected to start bleaching every year as soon as 2040, which is pretty devastating because, you know, bleaching usually ends up with corals dying um, Florida had like major bleaching events this year and a lot of those coral reefs experienced, uh, uh, maybe not a lot, but definitely a handful experienced hundred percent mortality. And so the, I guess the point is that I think all our individual actions definitely have a big impact, but I think what will truly push us in the right direction is we have, if we have like the right leadership at all levels of government and even like within corporations that are trying to invest in big cha- in the big changes that we need that are going to be good for us down the line. Like it may be a lot of money now, but in the future, it's going to be great for us. So I think the main point is just like, like trying to pick people that will help us kind of solve these large issues that we need to solve in order to save these ecosystems and species, but also just for us to have a better future, you know, so we don't have massive storms every year and like massive flooding every year. So it's it's kind of one of those things that if we solve it, it also helps us down the line and our children in the future. Yeah, that's definitely super important. I think so much of 
the general frustration I hear from people, whether they're in research or not, is just like, I'm one person, I can't fix this. And it, yeah. does, it really does take leaders who are willing to kind of lead in that yeah. direction, you know? Yeah. And and that being said, like, like I said, it's like at all levels, like from presidency down to like your city council, like we need it at all levels, because like I said earlier, like even local solutions are really important. Like it's not just greenhouse gas emissions. It's like the whole package. We need to solve it, you know? Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know this is kind of a unique episode, so I really I had fun. <laughs> yeah, I had fun. Too. It's my first podcast, so. So if people want to find out more information about your research or get a hold of you, how would they do that? Um, yeah, if you want to contact me, uh, I have a website. Uh, it's Danny, D-A-N-I, Escontrella, um, .com. Uh, and it has a contact slot where you can shoot me a message. But also if you just want to contact me directly, my email is uh, D-E-S-C-O-N at hawaii.edu. And I'm happy to talk to anyone that wants to talk about corals or coral livery or fisheries. Awesome. If anybody would like to get a hold of me or the other hosts, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or via email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. I'm Elise, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, choose good leaders at all levels. <laughs> <laughs>